Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest this week is Tom Nichols, professor at the Naval War College and contributor to The Atlantic. Welcome, one and all. We are now in the midst of something approaching regular politics with part of our screens, and then the crazy part is still going on the left-hand side, let's say. So let's start with what seems comparatively normal. The Biden administration has proposed a COVID relief package that amounts to $1.9 trillion. Um, now, I'm going to start with you, Bill Galston, because you've written about this and about uh, chances for any sort of bipartisan compromise. Let's start with the sheer magnitude here. Biden is suggesting $1.9 trillion. We had a stimulus bill that already passed. It's really wrong to call it a stimulus, but let's stick with that terminology since everyone is using it. Um, uh, that passed back in just in December, which is only a few months ago, uh, for $900 billion. There was a time when that was real money. Um, so uh, so let's start with that problem. You, you, you had a great line in your column. You said that there's a potential conflict between budget reconciliation and political reconciliation. So tell us about that. Well, um, you know, candidate Biden uh, ran on restoring unity and comedy. Uh, and certainly that was the major theme of his inaugural address. Uh, this is the first major test. Uh, is is there, is there a way of getting to yes on this COVID bill, some version thereof, and maintaining, uh, maintaining comedy and build, building unity? Uh, and that's a question addressed not just to the president, uh, but, to, but to Republicans, some of whom appear ready to negotiate with him, others not so ready. Uh, my own analysis suggests that there's nothing magic about the $1.9 trillion figure uh, and that uh, a, lot, a lot of the money revolves around details uh, that uh, may not turn out to be so significant either for delivering relief uh, to hard-pressed Americans and their families or stimulating the economy. So I think that if we begin from the ground up and ask two questions, number one, which provisions are relevant to the needs of the moment? And number two, how large do they have to be in order to meet those needs? Uh, we will probably come out somewhere in the middle. I did a back of the envelope budget reflecting those two simple questions that came out in the, in the neighborhood of 1.1 trillion which is $500 billion more than the Senate Republicans have offered and $800 billion less than the Biden administration is requesting. Uh, $600 billion, it's a lot of money, but 
given my analysis of the needs, wouldn't be within hailing distance of meeting those needs. On the other hand, the 1.9 trillion includes a lot of items that are either not directly relevant to, to the needs of the moment or are too large and poorly targeted. Tom Nichols, as somebody who has thought of himself as a conservative for much of your life, your career, um, when you look at this package, um, what jumps out at you as something that you know, if you were if you were devising it, you would steer away from. Well, there's two things going on at the same time, which is um, the. I mean, on the details of the package, I'm certainly not going to argue with someone like Bill Galston about it because I'm not an expert on um, health policy. Um, but this question of um, unity and passing what's best for the people, it seems that there are two tracks now. One is the things that are done quietly out of the public view that are going to be mostly handled by staff, where they're getting things hammered out in rooms that nobody knows about. Um, but does any of this really produce some sense of um, unity or a look like a united effort to move forward, you know, in saving the American people from this disaster. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think there's any number and I don't think there's any package that's going to solve that problem because the other track is what goes on every day in front of the cameras um, and through the, the new um, filter of social media um, that is really where people, unfortunately, are paying attention. In the end, the American public is just going to ask, what, which checks got sent out, who got them, and when did they arrive? And I think the idea of you know targeting, although I, I actually think the Biden administration is being too shy about this, I think that it, the targeting could be even narrower. Um, you know, there there are political landmines there. But increasingly, it seems like the landmines are for each party within itself rather than across the aisle uh, in terms of who's you know, not cooperating and who's not um, striving for unity. So, Linda, one of the things that goes on in our country these days is that, um, well, maybe it's not even that recent. Um, but the fact is, you know, people, they take polls and they say, you know, do you approve of this uh, proposed package? And, you know, the amounts that they're talking about are, you know huge and people say well absolutely i would i you know vast majority say i'd love to get you know fourteen hundred dollar check on top of the six hundred dollar one i got yeah absolutely i'm i'm for that and so the politicians say well there you go it seems to be popular but of course the details matter and um and as some republicans are pointing out the Biden plan would go to those earning up to $75,000 for an individual or couples making up to 150 grand a year. That's like 95% of the country. Um, it, it strikes me that, that that's a little bit unbalanced and that the, the, the Republicans have a point when they say, how about we limit it to those making under 50,000, <clears> excuse me, a year. And uh, the, and even if you did that, you'd save a lot of money, first of all, but also then you'd be making payments to only about 70% of the country, and you'd be avoiding sending money to people who don't need the money. Well, that's exactly right. And uh, part of the problem is that the idea of a stimulus bill is that it's supposed to stimulate the economy. People uh, or businesses are supposed to get money that they turn around and spend. 
And the problem with these $1,400 checks going to single individuals making up to $75,000 a year, there's a big difference uh, in, in terms of, you know, the circumstances of those uh, individuals. Somebody who's recently lost a job but may have made $75,000 in their last tax year is very different than a young person uh, who may still be living at home, even though they're, you know, self-supporting, um, who may decide to uh, bank that $1,400 check instead of going out and, and spending it in a way that has uh, stimulated stimulus effects in the economy. Now, I think the Republicans are right on this. And I think, you know, yes, we want to do things in a hurry, but we don't want to do it in such a way that it's not going to have the desired effect and it's going to be, you know, costing uh, the American taxpayer in the future in ways that are going to be, again, uh, not good for the economy. <clears throat> Damon, I think a few, maybe a week or two ago on this podcast, we talked about the importance of um, the Biden administration focusing like a laser on the pandemic and on getting uh, relief to Americans who were suffering and to getting a handle on on vaccination and treatment and all the rest of it. And, um, but it strikes me that, that this package, though it contains a lot for COVID treatment and testing and vac vaccinating and whatnot, it also contains a lot of other things. Um, it, well, just to, to pick any one of these, one of the things that, that um, if I were nitpicking, I would point out, it has a huge amount of aid to schools uh, which, you know, many schools are not open because the teachers unions refuse to go back to work. Um, it, it has money for a $15 an hour minimum wage across the board. I think that's a really bad idea. And it has nothing to do with COVID. Um, it, it's a bad idea for a lot of reasons, mostly because the, the, uh, cost of living varies tremendously in this country, state by state. Um, just to give an example, uh, in Mississippi, which has the lowest cost of living, the average two-bedroom apartment rents for $746 a month, whereas in Washington, D.C., which has the second highest cost of living, um, the uh, two-bedroom apartment will cost $2,776 per month. Um, so anyway, that, that's just an example of, of where I think this, this has gone way too big. And, and, it's, and, and finally, respond to any of those if you want. And if you don't like any of those, I want you to respond to this. The, um, the Biden administration thinks it learned a lesson from the Obama years, which is that you have to go big. Otherwise, you'll regret it. They feel that they made a mistake in 2009 by not going bigger on their uh, relief package, and therefore the economy, you know, took much longer to recover, and they paid a price for it. So, you can respond to any of those. Wow, so <laughs> so many softballs coming my way that I could hit out of the park. Um, I, I I'll I'll start at the end and just say yes, they have taken that lesson from the Obama years, along with the lesson that. They don't want to negotiate with Republicans for nine months, as they did over the Affordable Care Act, only to have no Republicans actually sign on and have to to slam it through on a party-line vote. So that seems to be at cross-purposes with the ambition that Obama stated – I'm sorry, that Biden stated at the beginning to work with Republicans and unity and all of that, as we've been 
discussing. Um, but it is a, a concern that somehow, like, if they, if they in good faith start negotiating with Republicans, that it actually will just be a stalling tactic. And in the end, hardly any Republicans will be interested in voting with them, no matter what they might pass. Um, so that, that makes uh, the Biden people, I think, perhaps a little bit more likely to capitulate to the left wing of the party. Uh, which is clamoring for, for big spending. The other thing that I think is, I agree with you, by the way, on the minimum wage. I think the minimum wage at the federal level should be very much a, a very low kind of base floor and that higher levels of minimum wage should be set by states given the, the difference in standards of living across them. That makes sense to me. But um, the, the other thing I would add is the weirdly unreal environment that we're in now when it comes to budget deficits and debt. There has been such a radical rethink on these questions among people in really both parties by this point compared to 2009 when Obama was trying to get his stimulus package passed that we're now in this kind of unreality where where one part of the calculations in these debates was always, well, we obviously don't have unlimited resources, so given those constraints, we have to pick and choose and prioritize among different things we might do. But now there's this feeling almost that, well, we can spend anything we want because in the end, there's no negative consequences. We never get inflation. Uh, interest rates never go up. And so given that interest rates are so low and have been so low for so long, why not take out that giant home equity loan on the country on top of the 18 other home equity loans we've taken out over the last generation or so? And so what you again, what you end up with is the Biden people wanting to do everything they can to help people who are struggling because of the economic effects from the pandemic combined with uh, you know, the fact that progressives have a lot that they want to accomplish, and there's really no one who can come in and say, well, we, we actually only have one trillion to spend because, okay, they proposed 1.9 trillion. It's really not clear why they couldn't have proposed 3 trillion. Because yeah, or if 10 there's trillion. No, or 10 matter. trillion, why not just give everyone $10,000 checks? I mean, it's, yeah. there's. I understand that within the constraints of specific policies, you can still say, for instance, we shouldn't raise the minimum wage federally to 15 because of the differences in standard of living. That'll help businesses in certain states. It'll hurt them, and therefore the low-income people will end up going out. They'll lose their jobs, and that's worse. Um, but that isn't about uh, the availability of funds to spend. And without that constraint, we're kind of in this situation where Biden, I think, feels like, well, if we can pass $1.9 trillion and make the left happy, stimulate the economy, and there's no negative fiscal consequence, why not do it? Yeah, uh, but back to Linda's earlier point, which I'm, I just want to underline, which is, you know, <laughs> That the idea of stimulating the economy, I just think, is misbegotten because it strikes me that the only thing that we should be focused on is getting the pandemic under control. There's a huge amount of pent-up demand out there. As soon as people can go back to school and work and back to the leisure activities, there will be a huge boom. I, I, but you can't stimulate the economy when people are stuck in their 
homes. And so, you know, where are they going to spend the money? And uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not averse to, um, in fact, I am in favor of helping people who've been hurt uh, by this, uh, by, by losing their jobs and other hardships during the pandemic. But, um, but the idea of giving more money, you know, to businesses and, and so on, I, I just, that I don't really think is, is a good idea. All right, let us, um, unless anybody wants to make another point about the stimulus package, did, Bill, do you have anything else you wanted to add or Tom? Uh, Mona, I, I'll just say that Damon's uh, point about, you know, the Democrats are concerned that um, working on a compromise isn't really going to get them very far. I think they believe this because they are right. <laughs> well, um, so yeah, the, um, the, there, there is that. I mean, you know, the, Going, we could we could rehash the whole history of the Obama years. Um, there was enough blame to go around, I think, um, uh, for sure. But um, uh, uh, and and you're right. I mean, they, there was reason to suspect um, in in Obama's memoir, which I read. Um, he he talks about how they basically courted Susan Collins, and and they were taking her to lunches and dinners, and 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 they were you know basically saying to her, look, you can write the bill, you know. I mean, they were trying to anything to get to get buy-in from uh, from Republicans, and in the end, they didn't get it. Yeah, Bill. Well, uh, I'm not sure that the process of getting to yes on a compromise is as totally hopeless as Tom suggested. Uh, and I, I don't think of two months ago as ancient history somehow. Uh, and, and people will recall that the leadership uh, on both sides, uh, I wasn't loggerheads for months on the question of follow on uh, COVID relief. And finally, a bunch of, dissident Democrats and Republicans banded together and put a bipartisan proposal on the table that not only broke the ice, but really furnished the template uh, for the bill that was eventually passed on December 28th. Now, uh, you may say that that's a one-off, but there's some of us who think uh, that it might be a template for doing more in that way. And we're determined to test that proposition until it becomes absolutely clear that it doesn't correspond with reality. Okay. Uh, On that happy note, um, let us turn. Sorry, did, were you finished? Uh, let's say I'm finished. <laughs> All right. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. All right. Let us turn now to um, the ongoing struggles of the Republican Party to deal with the post Trump world. It's not entirely post Trump because we have an, we have a uh, trial coming up. But um, but this week, uh, the GOP had to deal with two troublesome members of Congress. Uh, one is the uh, third-ranking leader in the House of Representatives, Liz Cheney, and the other is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, so here is what uh, here is what Mitch McConnell said about Marjorie Taylor Greene. He said, "Loony lies and conspiracy theories are cancer for the Republican Party and our country." Somebody who suggested that perhaps no airplane hit the Pentagon on 9/11 that horrifying school shootings were pre-staged and that the Clintons crashed JFK Jr.'s airplane is not living in reality. 
This has nothing to do with the challenges facing American families or the robust debates on substance that can strengthen our party. Um, so apparently a significant number of members of the, uh, of the House Republican caucus were receptive to McConnell's point of view because when the vote came on whether Cheney should be denied her, her leadership post, I think it was 145 voted to keep her against uh, 61 who voted to remove her, which is not what the Trump faction had been predicting. So, Tom, are you um, are you relieved or no? Uh, oh, should, no. Should, yeah. Okay. So let's. <laughs> not, so, not so, even so close. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, here we look. I mean, look at us. We're sitting here celebrating and saying, "Wow, isn't it great that Matt Gates <laughs> can't count votes, um, and that only sixty-one, or you know, a third of the Republican caucus is completely nuts, um, yeah. and that they had to do it. Think of this: they had to do it by secret vote." just to get to where they were. They couldn't all just stand up and say, um, you know, we are not part of the insanity caucus. They had, they actually had to keep their number three person by, but in their own caucus, this wasn't even on the floor right? Uh, by doing it by secret, um, by secret ballot. Uh, and when Marjorie Taylor Greene got up to speak, the room, you know, half the room bursts into applause um, I, I think this actually. Wait, links- I think they burst into applause. To be fair, I think they applauded after she said she no longer believes QAnon, not before. I believe, which makes um, a little bit of a difference. All right, I'm going to I'm going to choose to believe that um, <laughs> and uh, say that this actually links back uh, to what we were talking about with the ability to get deals and create unity. I mean, I think I wouldn't blame the Democrats if. They treated the Republicans kind of the way the major powers treated treated China during the Cultural Revolution, you know, to say, well, you know, we have to deal with them and they're a big country and we want to talk to them. But there's something really, um, you know, scary going on and they're marching people around in paper hats and they're they're burning their own villages. You know, at some point, this becomes it's not even a Republicans in disarray narrative. It's how do you even talk to a caucus where you actually have to keep one of your stalwarts by a secret vote because she voted on her conscience about the Constitution at the same time that you are also voting to levy no punishment against someone who is basically continuing. I mean, she. you notice there was a careful um, rephrasing when she said, I, I believe 9-11 happened. That's that's not the same thing as believing why it happened or who did it, but they're all yeah. going to kind of look at each other and shrug and say, well, I guess that's close enough. That's all we're going to get. Um, you know, this is really out of control. So, no, I I am not at all. Um, that that vote should have been an open for Cheney that in a, in a healthy, normal Republican Party. That would have been an open vote. It would have been slam dunk. All of the, um, you know, the Gateses and the Jordans and the Greens would have been told – um, you know, act like responsible legislators or you're, we can put your desks down next to the boiler. Um, but that's just not how it works anymore. McCarthy's lost control of his caucus and, and McConnell is in the Senate kind of looking over, constantly trying to figure out um, what pieces he can take out of this while criticizing and then backing up. Um, you know, it's, it's, this, is, this is nothing to celebrate. Um, this is, you know, this is like celebrating Dunkirk for the Republicans, I guess, that some of them are getting out of there in one piece, but this is not over. 
<laughs> That's a good a good analogy, um, Damon. Um, I'm a little out of patience with Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, he he gave that nice little statement about the cancer on the on the party and uh, on the on the country that that Green and her ilk represent. Meanwhile, um, he said nothing about this when he was uh, encouraging uh, people in Georgia to vote for his preferred candidates in the Georgia Senate runoff, one of whom campaigned openly with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and, you know, furthermore, um, he has an opportunity to make a very definitive statement about cleansing the Republican Party of the toxic sludge that it has that has come to represent at least a third of it and that is by voting to convict Donald Trump but he gives every evidence of uh, not not going that way yeah I know it's it's frustrating although I have to say it's I guess a testament to uh, the ever moving Overton window that that I now you know sometimes catch myself looking uh, with with a great deal of affection at old Mitch McConnell like oh at least you're willing not to endorse 9/11 trutherism yes um, boy God. we've come a long way um, yeah I mean I I agree it's a it, it's the same old problem that I, I think I talked about a bit last time on the show that. Now that Trump is out of office uh, and actually remaining remarkably quiet, I still can't believe weeks are going by where he's not like making any big statement on Fox or in, on any media platform of any kind. It's remarkably wonderful. But uh, anyway, he'll be back in some form, I trust. But um, with him gone, it is clearer than ever that really the what we're dealing with here is however much credit or blame you want to give Trump for contributing to it. The problem now is Republican voters. And of course, what we saw last night uh, on Wednesday night with these votes is is that it had to be it had to be a secret ballot and it still came in the way it did with Cheney winning by more than two to one, but not an overwhelming landslide of, say, you know, you know, 200 uh, in her favor because those those people are afraid of facing their constituents, not only when they next are up for re-election, but when they just go back to their districts. They don't want to be screamed at, yelled at, or frankly shot by the Republican electorate. And that is the problem. Now, with Trump, if Trump stays quiet, uh, you know, can a Marjorie Taylor Greene and say the other crazy, craziest dozen uh, House members, including people like Jim Jordan and, and uh, kind of uh, Matt Gaetz and the others, it, can they, you know, keep everything whipped up at this level or will it slowly dissipate and fade? I mean, that's an important question we're going to face over the coming months. Um, but at, at the moment, given all the media infrastructure that exists to generate this outrage, the fact that Fox News appears to be in a bad, uh, bad shape ratings wise and appears to be choosing to move more in the kind of Newsmax uh, OAN direction to try to recapture more audience. Uh, I suspect that, that this is just a sort of, for the moment, a permanent uh, fact about the Republican electorate. And as long as that is true, the people in Washington are going to drive us crazy because they're going to respond to it. Um, and, uh, and, 
that that is kind of the strongest case that can be made that you know the Republican Party as an institution really should be sort of mortally wounded and rendered inoperable for national electoral victory because it's too irresponsible to be given serious power at this point. But how you enact that, uh, you know, is a tricky, tricky business. Well, Bill Galston, um, I think that's McConnell's worry, though. I mean, he he does seem concerned when he looks at the results from Georgia and he sees the um, suburban voters bailing out of the Republican Party um, because of its its uh, association with nuttiness. Um, and uh, and he's I think he's genuinely uh, alarmed. What, what did what did you think? Well, I agree with that. Uh, <clears throat> two points. First of all, Damon, whatever the reverse of making your day is, I'm about to do it. Uh, just before we started this podcast, it was announced that uh, former President Trump has requested to be able to testify uh, in his uh, impeachment trial. Wait, I thought it was that they had agreed to call him, not that he not that he had volunteered. Are you sure? Uh I'll check let's that check. out, but whether, yeah, he's, whether he's called or requested, uh, I find it very difficult to believe that he will not testify on his own behalf. Uh, so while we're sorting that out, let me make my second point. And that is that uh, I have thought a little better of Senator McConnell lately. But I've been reflecting on this on this phrase, loony lies. And let me identify the biggest, looniest lie of all, namely that the 2020 presidential election was rigged and stolen. Yep. Because that is the lie that led straight to January 6th. Yep. So if Senator McConnell has you know, cocked his hat against accepting loony lies in the ranks of the Republican Party, then he has a lot more work to do than he's been willing to do up to now. Well, that's that's precisely right. And, uh, you know, let's not forget that while he was not nearly as bad as Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republicans in the House, who went on television and said this election was stolen, um, McConnell took his sweet time uh, acknowledging Biden's victory and said, you know, the president was within his rights to pursue his legal remedies and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, he doesn't exactly have clean hands. Um, Linda, uh, I'm curious about these the, the Democrats rushing to try to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments. Now, usually when there is a when there's a problematic member, it's left to the their own party to discipline them. And that did happen not that long ago with Steve King. Um, maybe it was too late, arguably way too late, but eventually the Republican Party did uh, remove him from committees for his, uh, for his uh, racist comments. Um, but, um, uh, but when the, when the other party does it as the Democrats are proposing to do today with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't know. By the time people hear this, this may have already happened. But uh, but it strikes me as um, first of all, it's, it sets a bad precedent because, of course, if the Republicans do get to be in the majority again, you know they're going to 
they're going to use it to, you know, try to take committees away from people like AOC, who is in no way comparable, by the way, to Marjorie Taylor Greene, but they will say it. Um, but the other, but the other thing is, um, wouldn't it be politically smarter for them to just hang Marjorie Taylor Greene around the Republicans' necks? Yeah, I have uh, real reservations about whether or not it's a good idea for one party to be able to kick uh, a member of the other party off of committees. I think that uh, it does set a precedent that is not going to be good for the future. And you're absolutely right. You'll you'll see it uh, happen the other way around if Republicans ever end up in a position to do that. So I, I think that's uh, one problem. And, you know, I, I know the, the notion is that if you're not on a committee, you can't really represent your constituents' uh, interest in, in an effective way in Congress. And so that's why stripping somebody of their committee membership is usually seen uh, as a good thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to know what to do about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. On the one hand, I think it has been since 2016, not just the party that has acquiesced to people like Trump or, or like uh, Green, it has been the voters. And for whatever reason, the Republican Party uh, has been willing to accept into their fold people who hold views uh, which are antithetical uh, to the interests of democracy, the Constitution, um, and just normal decency. And I think that, you know, you can't get away from the fact that there's really a, a, a terrible uh, phenomenon that's taking place among the American public. You know, QAnon has grabbed hold in a way that I can't think of any other comparable uh, conspiracy uh, has in recent years. I mean, it's got a huge following. And it is such, when you, when you examine it, when you look at the things they believe, they are so crazy that you can't, you know, understand why people of normal intelligence who have, you know, lives of, of any value and, and with any interests uh, would, you know, go down those rabbit holes. But it's really, you know, I, I think, yes, you know, they've ended up in the Republican Party, and the Republican Party has been willing to embrace them and let them flourish. But the bigger problem is how do we change the uh, minds of these great swaths of America that tend to believe these absolutely crazy things? And uh, the fact that, you know, someone like Green is elected uh, and you know, is going to be representing uh, their constituents. One would hope that next time around, because she's become such a lightning rod, that uh, she'll be voted out of office. But who knows? She may very well not. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're going to go to Damon and then Tom. Uh, Damon, uh, it's, the, as you were saying earlier, and as Linda echoes, it's, it is, we are dealing with a form of mass psychosis in this country, aren't we? We are, and uh, I just wanted to uh, add in a, the bit of news I just see here that uh, as we've been on uh, recording this, the GOP leadership in the House has recommended a no vote on the resolution stripping Green of her committee assignments. So there you go. I, I assume that means it will fail, uh, and then it will be up to the Democrats, and I agree with Linda that that 
that I think would be a strategic mistake. Um, I, I think that um, the dynamic in these in, in this kind of populist politics is very much uh, the same dynamic that prevails among publicists that uh, the only the bad, there is no bad publicity pretty much that basically, if she's a hero or she's a villain, she wins because she's being talked about and can be a martyr and can point to the enemies on the other side who've done these things to her, whether it's Democrats or it's more mainstream Republicans who gang up on her. And so the best thing is probably just to, to move along and, uh, and uh, you know, defeat her at the ballot box during the next election. Uh Okay, uh, I want to get to Tom in one second, but Damon, I, I just have to say I for, for I had an unusual experience this week reading your column. I disagreed. I thought your column where you where you said um, where you said you know we we just shouldn't pay attention to Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're just we're helping her out. She's fundraising off and all that. I don't I don't agree with that. I mean I don't think that we are in a position in this information, this crazy toxic information environment in which we all unfortunately live, that we have the power to deny her attention. I think she can get the attention anyway. And if she gets no negative attention from, you know, reasonable people, then she'll only get the crazy attention, which is which is a problem. Well, that's a big conversation that probably would take us too far afield. I mean, my, <laughs> okay. my in a very small nutshell, I mean, my case for that is what I was sort of sketching a second ago, that that the, the dynamics of politics that I think those of us on this podcast would like to go back to, um, in, in that kind of a world, what you're saying would be right. I just don't think we really live in that anymore. I think we live in a, in a system now where uh, power is a function of attention. And someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene has no real ambition other than to be the thing everybody is talking about. And she doesn't care how absurd or stupid or crazy it sounds. She just wants people to be talking about her. And her admirers love that very fact about her. And she mm -hmm. becomes a kind of hero, a folk hero for getting in your mind, Mona, and making you talk about her all the time. And I'm, I'm using you as a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, I, get, I, I, I so hear you. I, and I understand that there's a problem of how do you stop? I mean, how can you not talk about someone who's a lunatic and in a position of political power? And, and there are limits. Obviously, if, if she makes big news, I have to write something on her. But I do think it's worth pondering the fact that um, there is there's a way in which the very act of attacking her somehow makes her stronger, and that was Trump's kind of great uh, as it is superpower, genius, superpower, yeah. or genius of realizing yeah. the capacity of weaponizing social media to <sighs> do that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'll shut up now. Okay. Yeah. No. No. It's a. It's a, It is. A, it's a good point, and uh, and there, but there's more to more to probe on that. Okay, Tom. Well, since this is the disagree with Damon part of the show, I'm going to pile on um, because um, I think that's wrong. And I think if we're talking about a return to a, not just a re, not just the politics of, you know, where we were, I don't know, five years ago, but to seriousness, to some kind of real politics that's conducted by adults, by real human beings, then I, I just don't think that that the path of, um, you know, trying to shut off the oxygen 
works. Of course, remember, I'm the guy that said, let Trump be on Twitter and cover every one of his press conferences and let him blow himself up in, up in public. And I, I'm just going to, you know, raise my hand and say I was right uh, because those hurt him a lot. And they may have well uh, may well have cost him um, the election, particularly with his handling of the pandemic. When he got to the let's all, you know, inject bleach, his own staff was tackling him and trying to get him to shut up. So I, I don't believe that the, um, you know, don't reward her need for attention. Um, I think there's, I, I agree with Damon that there's a way to do it, but I think, but I think we've, we're facing a bigger problem. And here's where we come back to the Republicans and governing. People no longer think there is a link between voting and who they elect and actual government. They, they don't see it. They don't care. They think it's a reality TV show. And if their guy wins the election, they won that episode of Survivor or the, um, you know, The Apprentice. And this is where, you know, Mona, you and I years ago had conversations about, you know, shunning and shaming and, you know, embracing and dialogue and back and forth. And that that still goes on. It would have an electric effect if the GOP caucus said, look, um, you center here and we can't do much about that. But none of us in this chamber, in this party, um, you know, we have our differences with the Democrats, but they are our opponents, not our enemies. The problem is the Republicans have adopted this guerrilla mindset of we are the embattled, victimized minority. And anybody who's in a foxhole with us, even if they're, you know, complete lunatics, well, you know, they brought some ammo and a canteen of water. So I guess they're on our side. Uh, yeah. And so they have just internalized this to the point where they will criticize that literally there is nothing beneath contempt for the Republicans at this point, if you're willing to vote with that, that caucus. And I think that, you know, even if it looks partisan and I'm, you know, that's just tough if it does, if the Democrats are the ones to stand up and say, this person shouldn't be on committees and should not be treated like a normal member of Congress, that's, that's the message that needs to go back to that district because it does matter after a few years she can only surf that business of, well, I didn't get anything done because I wasn't allowed to be in the budget committee. You know, this is a very important time. Country's in a crisis. We need to get things done. You don't need this person sitting in the budget committee who she, because what she's going to do, and this is where I really disagree with Damon, she's still going to get all the crazy pants attention she wants. And she's going to, um, you know, like a parasite, stick herself onto whatever committee she's on and, and whatever they do. So say, and I got this done too. Look at me. I can be nuts and I can be governed and I can govern at the same time. And she will hide underneath the achievements of serious legislators and their staffs and simply append them to what she's doing. And I don't think anybody ought to let her do that, Republican or Democrat. And if the Republicans are going to drop that ball, then some other adults somewhere in that house are going to have to pick it up. You cannot endure this kind of inane juvenile madness in the House of Representatives. All right. Let us um, so, now. So there. <laughs> that, that's, no, it's a, it, it's, it's a, you've all made excellent points. Um, I uh, would just mention really, really quick, and then we're going to have, we're not going to have too much time for our third segment, so we'll have to go quickly. Um, but, uh, but I would just note that there was, that CNN had an interesting uh, report on a QAnon believer, a woman who, a uh, mother 
who uh, explained that she went deep down the rabbit hole, believed everything about QAnon, um, and uh, then believed that because she believed it all, she was stunned when Biden actually <laughs> took the oath of office and so on. Anyway, she's been able to extricate herself from this lunacy, but she, which, and she's a rare one at that. But she said that if they said, what would have disabused you? And she said, well, if, if President Trump had said it's not true, then I would have believed it, which just, I mean, obviously, with a, you, I roll, understand. But here's the point. Leadership matters. People do, despite all the crazy that's out there and despite whatever they see on the Internet and so on, what leaders do still influences what ordinary people think, and therefore leaders need to act like leaders. Okay, let us move on to... This third topic, because I saw this piece by Rich Lowry, where he said that Joe Biden is the most radical left wing president ever in American history. Bill Galston, what do you think? What did I say? Uh, I mean, Joe, Joe Biden uh, is trying to do the right thing in very difficult circumstances. Uh, his his party has moved left uh, on economic and cultural issues. The country has moved left on many of these issues. Uh, and he is trying to represent uh, as credibly as he can uh, what he takes to be the center of gravity, the changing center of gravity of both the Democratic Party and the country. Uh, so, uh, 20 years ago, you might have gotten 10% support for same-sex marriage. It's now about two-thirds of the population. Uh, and if standing four square uh, for, for that proposition makes you the most radical left-wing president in American history, uh, then... I think Biden would have to plead guilty and say that the country is in the most radical left-wing mood that it's ever been in. Uh, so, you know, Lowry appears to assume that history stands still. It does not. Now, uh, we can, you know, we can raise the question, which we talked about extensively earlier, whether proposing a $1.9 trillion uh, package of COVID relief is the sign of economic extremism. Uh, as I've already made clear, I think the package could be smaller without be, without being less efficacious or less less morally desirable. Uh, but does but does starting out with that number make you a crazy left wing president? In other words, I'm trying to figure out what it is that Lowry is talking about. Uh, All right, let me bring Linda into this because I think I have a feeling I know. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I wonder, you know, you and I always joke about um, having similar takes on things. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, has upset many people on the right on uh, is basically a cultural issue, and that is the executive order uh, basically calling for uh, transgender individuals uh, to – uh, be uh, allowed, uh, as many people have interpreted the executive order, to participate in school sports, um, both K through 12 uh, and at the college level. Uh, and all of this has to do with a Supreme Court decision that was handed down called Bostock versus Clayton, uh, 
uh, county. And what that Supreme Court decision said was that uh, there is no uh, right uh, not to be discriminated against because of gender identity or because of uh, one's uh, sexual uh, orientation. But what they said was um, that uh, sex, there is, a, there is a provision that says you cannot be discriminated against sex. And what the majority opinion held was that it is impossible to discriminate against a person for being homosexual or transgender without discriminating against that individual based on sex. So what the- Including a conservative justice. Right, including uh, a cons- uh, and, and I- uh, Of course. I, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, mm-hmm. Taking that though, and then suggesting that what this means is that, um, say a teenager who is a biological male, um, but yet identifies as female um, and may in fact be even in the process of transitioning through uh, plastic surgery and hormone treatment uh, into having female attributes. But to suggest that that uh, individual must be able to participate in sports on women's teams is a step that many conservatives, including myself, uh, think is problematic. Um, and I, you know, it's not just conservatives who feel that way. There are many uh, people who, you know, have championed Title IX and what it has done for women in sports and encouraging women to participate who are worried that if you have biological uh, males uh, performing against females on uh, teams and running or other, you know, competitive sports, that it will work to disadvantage uh, those who are biologically female. So I think it's that um, that one executive order uh, in and of itself has really sparked a kind of backlash on the right. It's like, well, everything that we told you about how crazy these people are is coming to fruition, um, and that's why you're seeing it. I don't happen to believe that Biden is the most uh, left-wing president in U.S. history. I don't think he's going to govern that way. Uh, But I do think that issues, particularly cultural issues, uh, are going to cause him some grief uh, in trying to get people who are more centrist to buy into his whole agenda. Um, So it's interesting that's where you went. I I agree that that has been a a lightning rod. I I thought you were going to mention the the matter of immigration, though, because uh, that's that's something that many on the right uh, regard as an important um, sort of identity thing. Let let me respond to that, because one of the things that has been striking to me with uh, President Biden on immigration I think he's been extremely careful. Yes, he has issued executive orders, but if you read those executive orders, mostly what they say is this is our policy preference, and we are therefore going to go to Congress and ask yes. Congress yes. to enact yes. a law. It is uh, nothing what like in the world yeah, is that? What are you thinking about? You know, <laughs> it is nothing like the executive orders that came out of the Trump administration, which essentially uh, Trump used uh, his pen to enact uh, changes that normally would come through legislation. So it's entirely different. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So Damon, um, you know, this picking up on that point, look, um, you can you can say that some of the things that uh, Biden is doing are definitely, you know, 
uh, going to uh, ruffle feathers on the right. No question about that. That's what happens when the other party wins. Um, but to but you know the, when you when you follow on a Trump administration and you strengthen NATO and you appoint normal qualified people to high government posts and you actually legislate as as uh, Linda was just mentioning. Uh, you don't attack our democracy. Um, you know, I think you can make a pretty good case that that's more conservative in very important respects uh, than than Trump's administration was. Well, maybe. I mean, that that obviously begs some important questions about the definition of what conservatism is and does that change over time just as uh, standards of left change. Um, so I, I, I will skirt that issue <laughs> for now and just okay. say that I definitely – I like – Bill's way of uh, talking about a response to Lowry's contention because it points to, I mean, if you say Joe Biden, the guy who ran for president and we've all been observing for decades in American politics, that he's the most left-wing president we've ever had, it, it sounds sort of absurd because his whole reputation, his whole campaign was that of a kind of moderate uh, sort of generic Democrat of the center of the Democratic Party who kind of wants to conciliate and has never in his career defined himself as kind of the leading edge of progressive change. Um, and, and yet what Bill said is also true, that in, a, in part in reaction to Trump, I mean, they, before Trump, like starting around 2012, there's all kinds of polling data about the fact that the Democratic electorate began shifting left on cultural issues quite strongly, on economics somewhat less so, but still a little there. Then Trump comes in and on immigration, the party surges to the left on trade far more in favor of open trade, even though Biden parenthetically seems to be sort of waffling on that issue in an interesting way. Um, yeah. So the, so the fact is that that Biden is a Democratic president and his party is quite a bit to the left of where it was under Barack Obama, certainly more. Although so trade is under Bill Clinton. trade goes the other way, Damon. The the trade yeah, it does. Position trade goes the other does, way. and that yeah. is that, again yeah. that that creates a weird question about of all the things, why would trade be <laughs> that that Biden decides? All right, I'll compromise with the Trump position on the trade. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't bizarre. exactly know why he would choose that. It is a little strange, but. Um, but it is the case that he's he's dealing with uh, with his own electorate, which which has moved quite a bit to the left, and he can't realistically govern significantly to the right of his own voters. And so, at the same time, the uh, you you know you might say that uh, Trump voters aren't really conservative as you define conservative, but they're clearly more right wing than say they were 20 years ago. And so this is the polarization we're always talking about. And so from Rich Lowry's point of view, yeah, I, I'm sure uh, Joe Biden's agenda seems like the most left-wing thing that he and his friends have ever seen. But the fact is the country is moving in these directions. And, uh, and I think Biden in that respect is very much kind of following rather than leading in that direction. I don't see how any Democrat would be any different. Tom Nichols, you wanted in on this. 
Yeah, I when I saw that we were going to be talking about that about the piece, I, I realized that we were going to do what we're doing now, which is that we were going to have a very serious conversation about a fundamentally unserious piece. Um, <laughs> because, you know, this is, as soon as the polls moved against Trump, this is the kind of thing Rich probably wrote six months ago, put it in his desk, and waited to see who won the election to say most left-wing president ever uh, because you knew that there were going to be things like this. I mean, one of the things that I actually object to here is how did a relatively sensible guy like Joe Biden step on this bear trap so fast? Um, but as Damon says, you know, he has a Democratic constituency. They won the election. I, I just want to take this in a slightly different direction and, and talk for a minute just kind of throw out that part of the challenge in pieces like this is to say, if your hair isn't on fire about this, you're not really a conservative. Mm -hmm. And I really bristle with that because, first of all, Trump voters, I, I think Damon's right, they are in some ways very right wing, but not in the way they live. They are as libertine as Trump himself. The days when, you know, you could tell the big city, you know, the sex in the city girls from the small, you know, from John Lithgow, the non-dancing pastor, um, that, that's gone. You know, these are Americans all live vaguely similar lives with you know, with, with some pockets of exceptions, but a lot of this is performative. And the other reason um, I'm not, my hair doesn't get on fire about these policy differences. I think of myself as a, as a genuine conservative who believes that human nature is mostly immutable. And I think that this question of should, you know, people born as biological males be running in um, girls track meets I actually believe is going to sort itself out without a whole lot, no matter what Joe Biden says or government intervention, because parents are a far more powerful source uh, of correction and policy than um, legislators are going to be. Um, just as I thought, you know, gay marriage and laws about homosexuality and all kinds of other social hot buttons are going have and continue to sort themselves out. But um, I think it's a trap to say, unless you object to everything Joe Biden does. You have to agree that he is the most left-wing president ever and that you yourself are left-wing because I think conservatives rightly said, we we all, you know, four years ago said, we can disagree with Democrats on a lot of things, but it is deeply conservative to believe in the rule of law, the Constitution, the free press, uh, freedom of speech, and so on. So I, I think some of this is just trolling from the Republican right to say, oh, you voted against Donald Trump? Well, then you must be in favor of, you know, six foot eight um, females with beards running in eighth grade track meets. And it's 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 a bad faith argument. And I think um, we're I think too many of us have given it more seriousness uh, than it deserves. And I think the the idea that Joe Biden's a left wing president was just sort of you know throwing that out there to see who'd bite. And I'm glad we didn't in this conversation. But there is a real question about uh about you know what what does that make us as conservatives and i think you know that we we have a good answer to that yeah um i i i tend to agree i think um that these matters of process and procedure and and loyalty to the constitutional order are at a at a much more those are the important conservative values that are far more important than your position on transgender athletes i just do i think absolutely you know, we we need to preserve the constitutional order at first foremost uh, that has to be our goal as conservatives um and uh and the trump uh party was a, a threat 
to that. So, all right. Um, let us now turn to our final segment uh, where we have short uh, recommendations or things that we want to highlight. Um, and I will start with Bill Galston. Uh, well, first of all, a kind of meta difference, which I'll just put down there for the record. Tom said we didn't bite, but we did. We just spent more than 10 minutes talking about a fundamentally unserious piece, which is, as Tom said, performative in nature. Uh, and the more time we spend talking about pieces that were written for effect rather than for serious analysis, the less time we'll have to talk about things that really matter. End of sermon. Now. Oh, I'm um, rebuked. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I, I have to say I am tired of people who write in order to be talked about. Hmm. I just, you know, and I don't care where they are on the political spectrum. If you put out a proposition that is designed to be so extreme that people are going to have to talk about it, the only appropriate response to that is silence. I'm tired of rewarding people who know what they're doing and do it anyway. Hmm. Now, okay. uh, something, quite ha something quite important, but way off the radar screen. Uh, is happening this afternoon. The United States is pulling the plug on its support for the Saudi-led humanitarian disaster in Yemen. Uh, this is a complicated matter, but it's a really big deal. Uh, suffice it to say that Yemen uh, has turned into what many international observers believe is the most important on gravest humanitarian crisis on the face of the earth. Uh, a a Saudi-led invasion uh, backed by not only American moral support but American weapons has been a critical part of this story. The Biden administration is pulling the plug on it. Hooray for them. Yes, agreed. Damon. Um, I actually, I'm going to ask Jim to edit this out because I want to say Linda wants to go next. <laughs> she has a oh. little note at the bottom. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. Thank you so much for that. I missed it. I missed it. Okay. Linda. Well, in uh, I'm in danger, I think, of being rebuked by our friend Bill, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to recommend uh, an article by Brett Stevens in the New York Times uh, which was a letter to my liberal friends. I think it is actually far more serious than uh, Rich Lowry's piece was uh, in National Review. But in this piece, he really is, is answering uh, a piece that Nick Kristoff uh, wrote uh, a week ago. And in this piece, he talks about uh, what his fear is in terms of what Democratic leaders might do and he said he's not really worried about them, you know, re-educating uh, Trump voters, sending them to camps or imposing socialism or putting out the mat, uh, welcome mat for MS-13. But he is worried that they are going to look to the democratic state of California as a model for America's future. And then he lays out a series of propositions having to do with changes that have taken place in California, uh, none of them very good, including a 
rather large flight of people uh, moving to other states, uh, 135,400 to be precise, uh, between 2019 and 2020. Uh, and he talks about some of the policies that are in place there, including uh, the tax rate, which is uh, very heavy in that state, but also some of the policies in cities like San Francisco, which have led to uh, increases in crime uh, that have led to uh, education that does not serve children. Uh, and I, I do think that it is important uh, to, for Democrats to consider this. And as uh, Brett concludes, we are really a purple country. And if we're looking for models, uh, the Democrats could do no better than to look to a purple state. And he picked my home of Colorado. So uh, I think it's worth taking a look. Okay, thank you. Damon Linker. Well, uh, this week I have a kind of negative recommendation. Uh, it's a very well done piece, but I'm not recommending it because uh, I think it's something uh, to, uh, to aspire to or a positive example of something. It's actually something that, that disturbs me quite a lot, and that is uh, something that we rightly don't spend that much time uh, talking about on the show, but it is uh, some of the things that are going on on the left. Uh, known as uh, often called to kind of a woke revolution. Um, this is a long feature in the New York Times Magazine titled, He Wants to Save Classics from Whiteness, Can the Field Survive? It's a, a profile um, uh, of a, a professor of classics at Princeton named Danielle Padilla Peralta, uh, who uh, is is a very prominent scholar, and he has he is uh, from the Dominican Republic, so he's black. He has become convinced that uh, the field of classics, the study of ancient Greece and Rome, is so thoroughly permeated by racism and white supremacy that, in effect, it needs to be deconstructed, disassembled, and uh, ended. And he has uh, devoted himself to teaching his students this message, to proselytizing the message in his field, and is getting a surprisingly large number of classicists to go along. Now, I care a lot about ideas and intellectual life and uh, the culture, the high culture of the country and the West. And I find this uh, pretty appalling and, uh, and disturbing that this kind of thing is happening as often as it is these days. And um, I think we need to be aware that it's happening and do what we can to push back against it. So I, I urge people, it's a very well done piece by uh, an author named Rachel Poser who works for Harper's. Uh, she does a good job of it, but uh, the subject matter is uh, something uh, less than edifying. Thank you for that. Um, I think it was 20 years ago that we first started hearing the chants on college campuses, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, a, very, it's a very uh, early 90s moment again, it seems. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, th those, kinds of, uh, those kinds of things worry me. Um, Tom Nichols. Well, I'm going to bookend this <clears throat> with um, a comment about foreign policy and a piece that I, I also, um, you know, it's almost like we're talking about pieces we didn't think were very good. But um, the new head of the Strategic Command talked about um, nuclear doctrine in Naval Institute proceedings. And it, 
it's not really a remarkable piece and I'm, I don't really recommend it, but I'm booking, bookending it with Bill's comment about Yemen and with the fact that we have signed on to extend the new START treaty for another five years with Russia about strategic nuclear weapons. And my point is, um, it's okay for us to start having the aperture, um, especially among national security conservatives, start thinking about this stuff again, because we were overwhelmed by this kind of defense of the Constitution uh, problem and constantly dealing with the fact that no one in National Security Council, the State Department, Defense Department, and I forgot to add, and I should, that I don't represent the Defense Department in any way when I'm here. Um, you know, they just didn't know what they were doing. And this was a treaty that was so important, even the Russians wanted it with us. Mm -hmm. And and now we, you know, we've done that, and there are competent people in charge. And I think, you know, it's almost like the rest of us have to, you know, come out of the fog a bit now and say, right, you know, nuclear weapons, Yemen, foreign policy problems. It's okay to think about these things again, because it is not hopeless to think about these things again, because they are not in the hands of incompetence and cronies. Excellent. Okay. I would um, like to hark back to the early days of the Beg to Differ podcast when our final segment was uh, things that people from the other side of the ideological spectrum had written that we wanted to draw attention to. So I'm going to do that with a piece from Jonathan Chait that ran in New York Magazine. Um, the title, I wasn't crazy about the title. The piece is a lot better than the title. The title is All the Lies They Told Us About the Filibuster. Uh, but the the piece is a, is a fairly um, persuasive, interesting discussion about the filibuster and its role in history and why some of the claims that have been made for it, such as that it um, it produces compromise is probably oversold. And um, anyway, I, I recommend it. It, uh, it, it, it has opened my um, thoughts more about the possibility that may not, it may not be so lamentable if we do get rid of the legislative filibuster. I'm still open to persuasion, but I thought that piece was very good. And with that, we want to uh, thank you all for tuning in. We want to thank Tom Nichols for joining us. And we will return next week as every week. Thank you so much. Thank you.